First Peter 3.15 calls us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet to do it with gentleness and reverence, and to keep your conscience clear, so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's a tall order. How do we go about doing that? Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's show, Chloe Langer. I'm joined by my regular guest, Joe Heschmeyer from Shameless Popery, Holy Family School of Faith here in the Archdiocese of Kansas City, Kansas. So welcome, Joe. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. If you're interested in sharing faith more, and if you're worried that you don't know how to answer questions that are thrown at you by coworkers or by your friends, we heard in the introduction, 1 Peter 3.15, that's a tall order. So if you're wondering how to live out 1 Peter 3.15 and how to evangelize, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about 10 tips to help you evangelize better. Exactly. Let's begin. So our first tip is apologetics take practice. So apologetics and evangelization, it's a lot like dancing. You can read about it. You can watch other people do it. But if you're ever going to actually get good at it, you have to actually get out there and do it. And don't get discouraged if you're not great at it at first. Very few of us are naturals, you know, out the gate. But the way the greats got great is by being bad first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be very daunting when it comes to evangelization to think, oh, if I don't have this all together, then I really can't talk to someone about it. And if you don't have those conversations, there's really no way to practice them. Yeah, now there are a few other things we'll get to in a second. Other ways, if you feel unprepared, mm-hmm. maybe there are some other things you have to do to prepare. But don't let your lack of preparedness keep you uh, from ever getting more prepared. So tip number two is win the person but not the argument. Yeah, so there's no point in, quote, winning, unquote, the argument and being technically correct if you've done so in a way that ostracizes and alienates the other person. Now, there's this professor, Jay Budachowski, who I adore. He's just fantastic. He's a professor of natural law down in Texas. And he gave a chapel talk for Westmont College a few years ago. It's about a 30-minute talk. And the first 20 minutes, he's explaining the law written on the heart, that we often think of the people who don't have the faith as just having nothing, as if we got all of our knowledge just from the Bible or just from the church. But God has already spoken to every one of us on the heart, which is why even the most devout atheist has a conscience. That dialogue has already begun before you and I get there. It means that it should revolutionize how we understand the other person. They're made in the image of God, and God has already done the prep work for you to come in and have the conversation. So you can't just be technically right and alienate and lose the other person so we'll put that talk in the show notes and i highly recommend people uh give it a watch take a little bit of a listen and and see you know how do we reach these other people while respecting their autonomy and dignity so you want to try to figure out who the person is and to understand why they're asking the questions that they're asking because questions don't just hang there in the air you know if a teenager comes to you and says why does the church teach this about sexual immorality? And they've suddenly developed a whole lot of questions around that. There may be a reason that they're asking that. And it may be bigger than just you giving them a, a cut and dry answer. There may be some need to accompany the other person to really delve into their life and to, to really be more of a witness than just an, an answer key. 
this takes humility too. I think it's easy to get into the trap of pride when it comes to evangelization, whether it's, you know, I have all the answers or I'm going to win this argument um, and trying to prove yourself in a conversation. But when you're able to really focus on the person and their story and, and have an air of humility and the virtue of humility in these conversations, it also shifts the dynamic. So this person doesn't feel like they're being won over. Instead, they're feeling like they're being encountered in a conversation. Yeah, there's a lot of Catholic debate and Protestant debate that happens online where it's just like, here are 22 reasons why you're wrong. Mm -hmm. That rarely does anything. Because usually all it does is builds up the ego of the people arguing and alienates everyone reading and experiencing it, especially if you're the one being attacked. That's not a good way of reaching the other person. And we don't really see Christ saying, here's 22 reasons why (laughs) you're wrong when, (laughs) when someone comes to him with a question. Now, occasionally he'll call out people when they're being arrogant themselves because he recognizes the humanity of the person, not just the question. But that's exactly what we're talking about. It's about winning the person, not the argument. If you don't know who the person is, why they're asking what they're asking, it's very hard to navigate that well. So you should respect the other person, learn what's motivating them, and then you'll have tremendously more success. So the reason I mentioned Jay Bodachowski a second ago is he has this great story in this in the course of this talk. He's talking about this person who comes to him with objection after objection. It doesn't matter. It's either to, about God or about abortion or about whatever the case may be. Whatever the topic was, every time he answered one objection, the guy would come back with two more. And finally, Budachowski says, okay, I'm not saying I could even do this, but let's say that I were to take the next two weeks and answer every one of your objections to your satisfaction. Would you believe that? And the guy says, no. And Budachowski says, and that was a moment of clarity in which he realized these weren't his real issue. And so just like that, he sort of dissipated the smokescreen. Mm-hmm. It's easy to think the question is the most important thing. And the question is just not. The person is more important than the question. And so maybe you can answer the question to your own satisfaction, maybe even to the other person's. But if you've done so in a way that you come off as grating or insulting, or you're just missing why they're asking, and maybe you answer in an insensitive way, you're not really advancing um, you know, the, the gospel in any meaningful sense. I think it's also important to note, too, that these aren't just evangelization tips for when you're sitting next to someone at an air, on an airplane or you're talking with someone around the water cooler, these are, aren't tips that you can just hang at the door when you log onto Facebook. Like if anything, social media has taught us is that it's really easy to talk past people and assume that they don't have a, a humanity because they're behind a screen and it's easy to talk to someone that you've never met. But I think in terms of, of Christian charity in evangelization, these tips are even more important in online conversation because it's easy to get misinterpreted when you are lacking things like facial expressions and body language and things like that. Yeah, I think that's crucial. We're not saying don't evangelize online. I mean, a lot of what I do, a lot of what you do, involves online and new media evangelization. But it's to just be aware that you do have more challenges than when you're just having a one-on-one conversation with a loved one. Mm -hmm. The third tip is consider your source of authority. Consider what the other person is going to listen to. This is another way of respecting the other person. So a daily mass-going Catholic who asks you a question about a particular topic may be totally satisfied if you say, oh, you know, the church and humanae vitae says mm-hmm. X. Mm-hmm. But your atheist co-worker is not going to be convinced by that argument, right? right? Because if they accepted the authority of humanae vitae, they wouldn't be your atheist co-worker. And so that doesn't mean that church authority is irrelevant, 
But it means look at the authority that a person already respects, what they'll already give you. If it's a Protestant, you know, being able to appeal to the Bible. If it's a Jew, being able to appeal to the Old Testament. If it's an atheist, being able to appeal to logic, reason, the morality that they recognize, those sorts of things. And here I want to really stress, this is something that Christ exhibits in his own ministry. So when the Sadducees question Jesus about the resurrection, he only ever responds to their questions by quoting from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Why is that? Because those were the only five books that they recognized. So they didn't believe in the resurrection because the resurrection is more clearly spelled out in later books, like in the book of Daniel. But he shows them from God saying in the Torah, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, well, is God the God of the living or the dead? So he uses the Torah and reason, which they did recognize, mm -hmm. rather than the book of Daniel, which they didn't. We should follow that same model. We should say, okay, what sources of authority do you believe in? Do you recognize? Do you respect? And how can we get to the truth by using those areas on which we do agree? Yeah, in marketing, this is like knowing your audience. But like you said, it's knowing a person's story. Like there's no way to shut down a conversation quicker than to source a, an authority that someone doesn't recognize or doesn't think is legitimate. Because they'll think you're just a mindless Catholic. Right. Like, if your Protestant friend says, well, why do you believe this? And you say, well, the church tells me. Mm -hmm. They're going to say, okay, so it's not in the Bible. It's just because the church tells you you have to believe this irrational, unbiblical thing. Mm -hmm. And so it actually can backfire very quickly. Or you want to be able to say, okay, well, what are the reasons? And that's not to say it's bad to believe a thing because the church says so. Right. But ideally, you can explain it in a way the other person can kind of come to that belief. Number four, charity is more important than a perfect answer. This is big mm -hmm. because I think we think of the perfect answer. You know, this is, again, winning the person rather than the argument. We think of the perfect answer as being the end-all, be-all, but it's not the case. You're inviting a person into faith, which is inviting them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this has implications. It means, on the one hand, if you're uncharitable, it doesn't matter how smart you are. You know, there's that old adage, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Right. But positively... It means that you don't have to be great at apologetics to be a really effective apologist or a really effective evangelist. You don't have to have a degree in theology. You don't have to have a ton of book knowledge. If you know your faith decently well, love the other person, and aren't afraid of being able to kind of share the faith with them, that's incredibly attractive. And, I mean, this is exactly the thing. If you consider, like... In your own life, if you've ever changed your opinion on anything, why was that? For most of us, it's because someone has taken the time to help to answer our objections, to help walk us through our concerns, to help form us. And in a lot of cases, it's something like our parents who, you know, especially as adults we know, didn't have all of the answers themselves, but hopefully were a loving, uh, attentive presence that was really formative. And, and so it is here. As an evangelist, you have a similar role to, to nurture, to kind of support the person, and to love them in the right direction towards, towards the truth. This emphasis on charity, I think, changes the narrative about evangelization. It changes it from apologetics as a script, 
where if you look at apologetics as knowing the right answer, when the person that you're talking to responds with a response that you weren't prepared for, it can leave you like, oh no, what was I gonna say? You didn't, you didn't respond the way according to my script. And so really emphasizing that this is a conversation with a person that involves charity changes it like away from you have to know the answers and everyone has to perform to the script that you have. Yeah, exactly. So in the past, I've written things about like helpful questions for dialogue. Mm-hmm. But I want to really make it clear that there's really no cookie cutter. There's no two conversations that go exactly the same way. And so you can have a whole arsenal of, you know, biblical resources on X, Y, or Z topic. But if it turns out the person's questions are in a different direction, you're going to often be really surprised where it goes. Mm-hmm. So I'd say two things. You know, in one of the earlier episodes, a couple episodes ago, we mentioned how successful the Mormons have been. Even though theologically their doctrines don't make a ton of sense, they're really nice and they try to live a life of charity. Now we have the infused virtue of charity and we have no excuse not to exhibit more you know, of the virtue of kindness in these kind of conversations. If you act like a jerk, it really doesn't matter if you're right in a big way. Most people aren't going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. If you let your temper kind of take control of the conversation, if you let your passions overwhelm your own logic, you're not being logical. It doesn't matter if you happen to have a, an airtight syllogism. It isn't logical to let your, your anger overwhelm your, you know, the virtue of kindness. And again, this is also scriptural. First uh, Peter 3.15, which we quoted at the top, talks about evangelizing with gentleness and reverence and with a clear conscience. Not just... Always have the right answer. But having an answer for the hope that lies within you and then presenting it in a gentle, reverent uh, way that you can stand before God at the end of time and he's not going to judge the way you address the answer. Tip number five, understand other people's position to their own satisfaction. Yeah, so a friend of mine, Father Andrew Strobel, he gave me this tip years ago. He said as a bare minimum in evangelization, you ought to be able to describe the other person's position in a way that they would agree with. Now, I mean, think about political discourse today. How often do Democrats and Republicans, for example, understand each other's positions, why they believe the way they believe, in a way that the other party or the person from the other party would say, yeah, you really get it. Like, you get why I think this way. This isn't about agreeing with the position you believe is wrong but understanding why a person believes what they believe. St. Dominic is a great example of this. Uh, He grew up in Spain, and he was a secretary to the bishop. And at one point, the bishop is traveling from Spain to what are called the Low Countries, like the Netherlands Mm -hmm. these days, which at the time was owned by Spain. So the bishop is traveling up there, and they're going through southern France. Southern France is in the midst of the Albigensian heresy. And St. Dominic's question is like, why are the Albigensians so popular here? And what he found is twofold. That the Albigensians were better preachers than the Catholics, which <laughs> I know shocking today <laughs> as we stand in a world in which there are these you know, evangelical megachurches with right. great preaching, even if the content is wrong. Mm-hmm. The style is so good and so captivating. And two, he found that the lifestyle of the Albigensians was more praiseworthy than that of a lot of the Catholic priests. That the Albigensians lived out poverty in a really attractive way. So people would hear these two messages, a badly preached Catholic homily and a really impassioned Albigensian sermon. 
And then they'd see the Catholic priest was maybe living a life of luxury or at least not living out the Christian morality in, in the way that the church taught. And then they'd see the Albigensian. He seemed to be living a much more Christian life in that sense. And so what would they do? They'd start to follow Albigensianism. Dominic recognized that the Albigensians got these two things right. Poverty and preaching. Mm -hmm. And he founds the Dominicans, which are officially called the Order of Preachers. Right. And they're a mendicant order, meaning a beggar order. So they don't have a lot of money. And so he embraced what the Albigensians were getting right and then infused it with the gospel to improve on what they were getting wrong. But that's only possible if you understand where the other person's coming from, why they're drawn to that thing. If, if he just said, ah, oh, the Albigensians are heretics, we have nothing to learn from them, you don't get Dominicans. This tip of knowing where someone's coming from in a conversation is something that can apply to a lot of things apart from evangelization. We're getting ready to teach marriage prep. My husband, not this Joe, but my my Joe, um, <laughs> are teaching marriage prep. And one of the tools that we teach engaged couples is in a conversation where there's disagreement to repeat back what someone's saying. So do you mean, you know, and fill in the blank. And in conversations, especially in evangelization, where you're talking about the faith and it's something that sometimes you can feel like you have to prove it right. It's easy to listen to respond and not to listen to listen to someone. And so this tool of, do you mean this? Or to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, is this what you believe? Really helps the other person realize that you're valuing what they're saying and that you're listening to what they're saying. Absolutely. And not to put your own spin on it to make it more ridiculous. Because right. so often it's easy to be like, Oh, so do you mean this ridiculous kind of characterization of the other person's position? Mm -hmm. But they don't do that. Like, give them the respect of understanding what it is. And a lot of this is having the confidence that you have the truth, that you don't need to uh, make a mockery of the other person's position to be able to respond to it. Mm -hmm. That the strongest form of their position is still not as strong as the truth of Jesus Christ. Think about the Summa by St. Thomas Aquinas. The objections that he presents in it are often presented better and with more clarity than his opponents had. Like he, in other words, he presents heresy more attractively and more effectively than did the heretics. And then he shows why the heresy is still wrong. So here's, here's the problem. If you don't do that and you have what you think is a great answer, the person can easily be like, yeah, you don't really get what I'm saying, though. Mm -hmm. You're responding to, like, a straw man version of my argument, or you're responding to a weaker version. And so it lacks any sort of persuasiveness. Blaise Pascal has a great quote about this. Quote, When we wish to correct with advantage, and to show another that he errs, we must notice from what side he views this matter. For on that side, it is usually true, and admit that truth to him but reveal to him the side on which it is false. He is satisfied with that, for he sees that he was not mistaken, and that he only failed to see all sides. Now, no one is offended at not seeing everything, but one does not like to be mistaken. And that, perhaps, arises from the fact that man naturally cannot see everything, and that naturally he cannot err in the side he looks at, since the perceptions of our senses are always true. End quote. So let's give a few examples of what this might look like. An atheist comes and says, oh, you believe in a sky fairy and that's ridiculous. Okay, well, obviously he's failed to do what we've just said. He's failed to understand your position. Mm -hmm. But you can still understand his and say, hey, you know what? Like, you are right. 
the idea that a sky fairy could have created everything, that a being within the universe could have done all of this is ridiculous. Like, that's mm-hmm. totally true. Thanks be to God. That's not what we actually do believe. Would you like to hear what we really do believe? Or, you know, some variation of that. Trying to appeal to first where they're right. You know, a sky fairy would be a ridiculous belief if it were true. Or a Protestant saying, oh, Catholics believe you can work your way to heaven and that's heretical. You can say, great. The idea of Pelagianism, that we can earn heaven by our own merits, that is wrong. And it's really unfortunate that people might believe that. And the church, fortunately, actually condemns that position. You want to hear what they really do? Like, you know, we're actually much closer than you think we are. Mm -hmm. So those kind of conversations, when you understand the other person and can say, oh, great. So I see, I think, what it is you're trying to reject or what it is you're trying to affirm. Make sure they agree with it. And then show where they're right in affirming or rejecting whatever that is. And then give them the broader picture. Yeah, and I think this all this is a theme that's been running through these tips is just a respect of their position. It's very respectful to see the truth in someone's argument, but then to also respect their dignity to show them the entire truth. And like we've said, like Catholicism has the entire truth. This was a real shift in emphasis in the Second Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. So one of the common mantras before the council was error has no rights. And that's true. I mean, you, you, something that's heretical, has no rights in as much as it's not true. You know, we don't need to respect falsehood since the devil's the father of all lies. Mm-hmm. But even while error has no rights, even while heresy has no rights, heretics do because they're still made in the image of God. And so respecting the person behind the position was, I think, one of the major shifts in emphasis. Obviously, it's not a shift in teaching. The church has always taught that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think we can get a little carried away with just the falsity of a particular set of beliefs, rather than affirming what they do get right, rather than affirming the goodness of the person. And it makes it very hard to convince anyone if you don't affirm their dignity, make them feel like they're actually understood, known, and loved, and then you can lead them further in. Tip number six. Whenever possible, draw the truth out rather than pump the truth in. So this is a tip that we're blatantly stealing, both from Jay Budachowski and from Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal describes it this way. He says, People are generally better persuaded by the reasons which they have themselves discovered than by those which have come into the minds of others. So this is one of the easiest, most concrete, and most often overlooked tips. As often as you can, don't assert a point. Ask a question that has the other person tell you that point. So let me give you an example of what I mean. You're talking to a Protestant about the scandal of denominationalism. Christ creates one church, and now there are all of these different churches teaching different creeds, and that is rightly scandalous. The wrong way to go about it would be this. You know, there are 42,000 Protestant denominations out there. Or, if not 42,000, 33,000, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, the first problem is that those numbers happen to be false. This is a common Catholic claim that I've heard. It's based on poorly misunderstood studies, and Catholics need to just stop making this point because it's wrong. And when they make that point, and they're wrong, that doesn't help the argument. Because then the Protestant says, basically, no, you're wrong. There aren't 42,000. There's not 33,000. And the numbers you're looking at are, are totally off. 
So all you've done is made an assertion that you turned out not to be able to back up very well, and you've really undermined it, or you get into a big debate over the exact number. Let's take a different approach to that same question. Instead, just ask, well, how many Protestant denominations are there right now? If they want to supply a specific number, fine. You can have a working number for the conversation. Or maybe you can just both agree that that number is a lot or too many to reliably count, even within the U.S. alone. Well, then you can ask, how many denominations do you think Jesus wants? Now you've opened up a new avenue in the conversation. If the number they give you turns out to be false, it kind of doesn't matter. You're not giving them bad information. If they want to say there are 12,000 denominations, you can say, okay, we can use that as a working number. How many should there be? But either way, you've gotten past the debate over the exact number. They're not going to get home, find out that you gave them bad numbers, and then disregard everything that you said. And so this is just generally true. If you lead a person to tell you a thing, they've made a commitment verbally to that position. If you tell them the thing, you've made a verbal commitment to that position, but they haven't. And so they can disregard what you're saying much more quickly than they'll disregard what they're saying. So as much as you can, try to draw out what a person already believes. And I think you'll find that frequently they already believe a lot more than maybe you gave them credit for going into the conversation and you can kind of lead them sometimes to their own logical conclusions or lead them to reevaluate their positions if it turns out that they have mutually uh, incompatible beliefs. This reminds me of how some of my favorite classes were taught in college. How some history professors would lecture for hours on hours and you take notes and then regurgitate information. But some lectures were taught instead in like, hey, here's a topic that I'd like you to present on. Can you go do research on this topic and then present it yourself? And so it was bringing you to the same conclusion that their teaching would have been, but through your own knowledge of it. So you much, were much more likely to claim it because you knew it was right. You came to that conclusion yourself. Yeah. So there's a group, Justice for All, that does mm-hmm. some great pro-life work in this diocese and elsewhere. And this is one of the things that they really emphasize as well. It turns out almost everyone who does this well comes back to this point. You know, if you can ask a person about their own beliefs, I'll give you a very clear example involving abortion. You can use this with basically anything with evangelization. We were doing some evangelization on campus um, at the University of Missouri Rala. It's an engineering school. And we met a young woman who was a freshman at the time. This was a few years ago. She's probably graduated. I'm very old. (laughs) And she said, you know, she grew up Catholic She still went to Mass when she was at home with her parents. She still considered herself Catholic, but she didn't go to Mass, and she was pro-choice in certain cases. She thought abortion should be permitted in cases of rape, in cases of incest, in cases of the life or even the health of the mother. And so what I asked her was, well, why are you against abortion in all those other cases? She initially started to tell me why she was for abortion, at least being legal, in the cases that she'd originally specified. Because that's where she thought the conversation was going to go. But instead, by asking her, well, why are you against abortion the rest of the time? She had to make the pro-life argument for why abortion, at least generally speaking, is wrong. And then once she starts saying, oh, because it might be killing an innocent person, you can say, okay... Well, do you think it's okay to kill an innocent person if you've been raped? Or do you think it's okay to kill an innocent person 
if they somehow endanger your health. And made her reconsider using her own knowledge that she'd provided to the conversation to kind of reconsider her own beliefs that she'd just never seen how these two principles she believed fit together, or in this case, maybe didn't fit together. The seventh tip is do your homework, especially on your knees. So before you can have a lot of effectiveness out there, you need to start at home. You need to really Mm -hmm. clean up the house. And so this is especially true, I think, if you find that you've been stumped or if you really bumble an answer, take the opportunity to really grow. If you want to be great at apologetics, at evangelization, you need to learn how to learn from your own failure. Uh, you know, that's going to mean doing your homework, doing research. But even more than that, praying. That, you know, if you encounter somebody who seems open to the faith, pray for them. Pray for them by name. Mm-hmm. When you encounter someone who you have an important conversation with and they seem closed off to the faith, pray for them. And pray for yourself. Pray to have the, you know, the humility yourself. Pray to stay in a state of grace so that you're not a scandal, so that you're not closed off to the graces with which the Holy Spirit wants to use you in that moment. So pray and research. Work on your own house. And, you know, the more you... It's almost like practice before the big game. If you don't ever practice, if you never do any of the prep work beforehand, yeah, the big game's not going to go well. And so when Catholics say that they don't feel ready to evangelize, it's frequently because they haven't given themselves over to prayer, they haven't been reading scripture, you know, they haven't been doing any of the things that they ought to be doing. And they use those failures as excuses not to, uh, not to go out and evangelize. But if you were on a sports team and you say, I'm not really ready for the game, coach, I haven't practiced once, mm-hmm. well, that's not an excuse. That's a, a call to go practice. That's a call to go do the work beforehand. During this podcast, we talk about how evangelization is welcoming others into a friendship with Christ and how if you have a friend who you don't really know very well but you want to introduce to another person that introduction isn't going to go well because you don't know your friend well but if you have a friendship with Christ where you're talking and listening to each other on a regular basis and you're inviting to someone into that friendship what a rich friendship you can invite them into yeah it's almost like a blind date yeah if you're trying to set someone up with someone you don't really know if you don't know either of them very well chances are it's just not <laughs> gonna go really well really messy. but if you know both people intimately which involves knowing christ through prayer through scripture really growing in that relationship and coming to know the person you're trying to evangelize when you know the two of them that meeting is gonna go a lot better Yeah, there's an emphasis sometimes in apologetics on head knowledge, and it can be easy to look over the heart knowledge of your faith. And so I think this tip really just emphasizes that friendship aspect and that heart side. Tip number eight, losing the argument can sometimes help win the person. Yeah, so this is a little counterintuitive. Let's say you really do get stumped. Okay, so remember, one of the biggest reasons Catholics explain for why they don't evangelize is because they don't have all the answers. They're afraid someone's going to totally stump them. There are a few things to say here. Number one, that actually pretty rarely happens. Rarely are the reasons a person, you know, refuses to become Catholic, deep theological nuances. Most of the atheists you're encountering aren't brilliant theologians who have rejected the faith. They've given this less thought than you have. And so their reasons are going to often be surprisingly superficial. That's just, I mean, just as a matter of fact, be prepared for that happening. Instead of answering some really involved really hard to understand issue you'll probably be answering the same basic misunderstandings over and over and over again 
most people, when they leave the church, you know, the, the most common period of life in which to leave is the teenage years. Yep. So you have these half-catechized teenagers who then leave the Catholic Church. And those are your ex-Catholics who still have a, a child's understanding of Catholicism. So you're not going to be blown away by the theological mastery they're throwing your way most of the time. There are some brilliant atheists, but that's not the norm. But second, this is really an appeal to your own pride, saying, I'm not going to evangelize because I'm too proud to admit being wrong. As if that's what God wants. Like, hey, I only want you to spread the gospel if it's not going to inconvenience your pride. If it's not going to get in the way of your ego. That's a terrible reason not to evangelize. And at least recognize that what you're saying is, I'm more committed to my ego than I am to the gospel. That's a bad position to commit yourself to. Third, you can actually have these incredible moments of grace in being stumped. A lot of this is just learning to respond with humility. So I like to say something like this. Wow, that's a really good question. Let me research that and get back to you. And then set up a time with the person. So here's what you've done. First, you've told them that they asked a great question. This validates them. It shows that you care about the person more than about the argument. I mean, that's just so clear from the fact you're saying, wow, what a great question. Second, you're admitting that you don't know the answer. You're humbling yourself. You're showing that it's not just about winning for you. And third, you're promising to look into it and to get back with them. And then you should do it. You should ask for their email or their phone number. You should set up an appointment to meet up again. You should do the homework and you should come back to them. Here you're building relationship and you're getting a second conversation out of this. So even if you feel like the first conversation didn't go as well as you wanted it to, you're now ready for conversation number two and you're investing in the person and you're investing in the person around the question of evangelization. That's huge. And all that you had to do to get there was not know the answer to something. And to still respect the other person more than your own ego. To respect the gospel more than your own ego. There's a difference, too, between saying, you know, I don't know that answer, and there is no answer to that. Yeah, because mm -hmm. odds are, unless this is like truly just some off-the-wall, bizarre question, they're not the first person to ask exactly. this. And you can find Catholic resources out there that directly answer this. So in my own kind of coming to a deeper faith, Father Andrew Strobel, who I mentioned before, before he became a priest, he was my RA, and I'd known him since childhood. And I would try to stump him by asking these random questions. And he always had a solid answer for it. He was a great embodiment of 1 Peter 3, even before he became a priest. And he would follow up. This is another crucial part, is follow up. Whether you know the answer or don't, take the opportunity. So he'd sometimes give me a book or he'd, you know, give me more information about it. Not as like a gloating, see how right and how wrong you were, but rather as a way of showing that he cared about me and about me understanding this issue better that I wanted to understand. Yeah. This tip is like an emphasis on that. This is a conversation. This isn't a one-time argument where you get to vomit the answers into someone's conversation and then walk away. Like this is a person that you're interacting with and that follow-up gives that chance to just affirm their dignity and affirm their humanity. Exactly. Tip number nine, know your enemy. Yeah, your enemy is not the other person. Mm -hmm. And that is a very common mistake. I need to beat you because you are wrong. Nope. Ephesians six twelve, For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the person you're talking to, no matter how against the truth, against the church they might be, they are not your enemy. They're a person that Christ died for to redeem and to bring to share heavenly glory. Your enemy is the devil. You're trying to save this person that Jesus loves and that you'd better love from the clutches of the devil. So you should treat the other person with respect accordingly, and you should do anything, avoid doing anything that gives harbor to Satan, whether it's falling back into your own pride, whether it's lying to try to win an argument, anything like that is actually giving up points to your real enemy, Satan. The tenth tip is that it's not about you. So oftentimes, you're just not going to get the chance to see the whole process through from beginning to the end. You don't get to plant the seed and harvest. And you just won't know at the end of the conversation whether your words made any different. So I think because of this, you have to just learn to be patient, to not get discouraged if you don't see any immediate results. Maybe you don't see any results at all. And remember that you're not going to know until Judgment Day what the effects were of your work here on Earth. Uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, said, we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. And that's a very hard thing to actually live out. We want to win. Like We're <laughs> wired to win, to have success. And it can be so discouraging, so disheartening to spend time and effort loving a person, trying to give them the gospel, and having them still walk away. I know parents often know this pain brutally well. But it can happen in all different contexts. And then you just pray and pray and pray. Remember, St. Monica was weeping over her son, the future St. Augustine, because at the time he wasn't living a Christian life. And I'm sure she felt as a failure of, as a mother. But when she goes to the bishop, he tells her, the child of so many tears will repent. Uh, he was so convinced that because of how intensely she was praying for him, that the conversion would happen. Monica didn't convince St. Augustine. St. Ambrose did. Mm -hmm. She didn't get to see the whole thing through in the same way. Now, fortunately, thanks be to God, she got to see that he converted. Right. She just didn't get to do every part. You may not even get that privilege of getting to see the other person converted. And maybe they won't. But you do what you can and leave the rest to God because it's not about you. Uh, my friend Mary Kadivi and I call this process soul farming. Like some friends, when you bring into conversation about the faith, you are planting seeds. And some friends, you're watering seeds the others have planted. And sometimes in friendship that where you have this beautiful mutual friendship with Christ, like you get to see the blooming. And so I think in reference to like praying for these people, also to pray for the people who planted seeds in their life, because you could be watering things that have been planted way before you had that conversation with them. Exactly. I mean, if you talk to a convert about why they converted, it'll often involve maybe dozens of people who in most cases never found out what a great impact they made on that person's life. Mm -hmm. Bonus tip. We said there was 10, but we lied. <laughs> <laughs> there were 10. There's just also a that's bonus true, tip. That's true. <laughs> bonus tip is number 11. God's in control. So trust him. Yep. Trust him, especially when things don't go as you want them to, when the person doesn't convert. I mean, there are basically three reasons why things don't go well. Number one is it could have been your fault. Maybe you were unprepared. Maybe you were uncharitable. Whatever the case, learn from it. Number two could be their fault. Maybe they're just not open. We'll pray for them. Number three, it could be God's fault, so to speak. He just hasn't given that person 
the grace, or he hasn't opened that door, he hasn't given them the push, whatever it is, pray to him for them. But above all, uh, be thankful to God. He's sent us into the world to evangelize it. But fortunately, he doesn't leave it all up to us. So some of the most amazing conversions happen in spite of us. There's actually, I could probably share a story right here involving a pretty ridiculous one that I was involved with, inadvertently. So some years ago, there was a crazy group that was advertising the end of the world was coming. And I decided sarcastically to live blog the apocalypse. This was not the greatest use of my blog. Uh, but I was trying to show the absurdity of this kind of eschatology. There really was something of a theological reason mm -hmm. behind it, but I was partly just having fun. So I decided to live blog the apocalypse. At the time, there's this New Zealand blog that links to mine. And so according to this prophecy, Jesus was going to come back at 7 p.m. But there wasn't a time zone attached to it. <laughs> so it seemed to be a rolling apocalypse. And so I leave a sort of ironic, snarky comment on this New Zealand blog saying, Ah, how's it going with all the earthquakes over there? <laughs> har, har, har. That sort of thing. What I don't know is they had just had an earthquake in Auckland. Oh, shoot. So while I'm trying to just poke fun at this ridiculous family radio group advertising the end of the world, I come off as a massive jerk. Turns out there actually are earthquakes and people are hurt. Yes. No big deal. And so, you know, just as we said a second ago, you don't always know the mm -hmm. positive effects of your actions. That goes in both directions. <laughs> and so there's this woman who reads this and is hurt and outraged that this American jerk just comes along and makes fun of their natural disaster. So she decides to get back at me. <laughs> she wants to find out what I care about so that she can mock me oh. and really stick the knife in oh. since I've, she didn't realize inadvertently, suck the knife in. Mm -hmm. On her end. So she comes over to Shameless Popery to read the blog just to find out what I care about. Yeah. Not because she's interested in some charitable way, but just so she can stick the knife in. Yeah. And then she starts learning about Catholicism and is really intrigued by it. She is at the time a Reformed Christian, like a, a Calvinist basically. And she sees a link that I have on my site to this blog called The Communion, which is a fantastic blog of a bunch of former Reformed Christians who are now Catholic. Nice. And so then she clicks on that and starts reading. She converts to wow. Catholicism and writes huh. me what is, to this day, one of the strangest emails I've ever gotten. <laughs> because at the time she's writing it, A, I've never heard of her. Mm -hmm. And I've inadvertently played a role in her conversion just by being a jerk. <laughs> and B, she still thinks I did this on purpose. <laughs> so she's forgiven me in this email. And I'm just like totally baffled and befuddled about what any of this is. It takes a while to kind of untangle what's happened here. It was a really clear illustration to me that it's not about me. All I did was accidentally make fun of a natural disaster <laughs> and sarcastically live blog an apocalypse and have a link to a good website on my blog. Mm -hmm. That was my, like, this was not some, like, wow, what a brilliant day yeah. this was. This was totally coordinated by me to bring about her conversion. Yeah, like, I, I couldn't wish. have crafted a, <laughs> right. a plan this bizarre. And yet, God used this really strange, circuitous route to bring her into the fullness of the Catholic Church. Mother Teresa has this quote where she talks about how she's a pencil in the hand of God. And, like, sometimes our blogs about snarky apocalypse <laughs> are yeah. also pencils in the hand of God, too. He works through our messiness. Yes. Amen. 
for listeners, we, we hope that these tips are helpful. The next time that it comes to evangelization, know of our prayers uh, for you and for that evangelization, evangelization process, but also for those that you're evangelizing to. Excellent. Let's close in a prayer. Mm-hmm. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And then the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.